You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that is an excerpt from the song Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism. We're taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes. Find some links to make a donation and a link to send me a message. First up, we have a piece from PeoplesDispatch.org. This is written by Abdul Rahman. Eradicating the inequality virus calls for more than just slogans. The Oxfam Inequality Report highlights that the impact of COVID-19 has been different across different sections of society. Government policies across the world have enabled the rich and powerful to increase their wealth during the pandemic. The latest report published by Oxfam has yet again confirmed the rising trend of inequality globally, a phenomenon that has been accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. It has also made all the more evident the need for decisive actions by governments if combating inequality is to be anything more than a slogan. According to the report published by Oxfam on January 25, the world has seen an unprecedented rise in inequality during the pandemic period. The report, titled The Inequality Virus, Bringing Together a World Torn Apart by Coronavirus Through a Fair, Just, and Sustainable Economy, pitches for increased social expenditure by all governments in order to help poor and vulnerable sections cope with loss of income, which may take years to return to pre-COVID levels. The report prepared by Esme Berkout Nick Galasso, Max Lawson, Pablo Andre Rivero Morales, Angela Taneja, and Diego Alejo Vazquez Pimentel argues that the idea of COVID-19 being an economic leveler of it affecting all sections of society equally has been proved to be a myth. In reality, COVID-19 has widened existing social and economic inequalities of class, race, and gender in all corners of the world. A part of the study was surveyed was a survey of 279 renowned economists across the world on the economic implications of the pandemic. More than 87% of respondents believe that the pandemic has led to a major increase in income inequality, and more than 55% thought that it will lead to an increased gender inequality. The report argues that though the rich have already bounced back to their pre-COVID levels of income, and in fact, have become richer, the poor may take at least a decade to recover lost incomes. Though inequality has been rising in different parts of the world for long, the period between March and December 2020 
was the first time on record when it increased at the same time in virtually every country and at an unprecedented rate. The report mentions how the fortunes of the world's top billionaires, which suffered an average loss of 30% during the first few months, returned to their pre-COVID high within just nine months. These billionaires, in fact, added trillions of dollars to their combined wealth during the same period. The report highlights that the increase in the overall wealth of just 10 billionaires in the world is so great that it is enough to pay for all the vaccination across the world. That wealth is also enough to prevent anyone anywhere on earth from falling into poverty due to emergencies such as COVID-19. This has happened even as the pandemic has created the worst jobs crisis of the last 90 years, with millions unemployed or half-employed. Existing social and economic inequalities have resulted in the virus having an unequal impact on different sections of society. The report highlights the gap in mortality rates between the white and Latin-slash-black population in several countries, including the U.S. and Brazil. In the U.S. alone, at least 22,000 more Latin and black people have died than white people. Similar data also emerged from Brazil, where people of Afro-descent were found to be 40% more likely to die of COVID than the white population. The report notes that amongst those at risk of losing their job, women outnumbered men by at least 112 million. This is a result of the disproportionately high representation of women in low-paid, precarious jobs, which are more vulnerable to the impact of the pandemic. Women are also more vulnerable to COVID-19 due to their overrepresentation in healthcare-related frontline work. Vulnerability to COVID-19 is higher among the poor due to greater exposure and mobility. In Europe, for example, unlike higher-wage earners, 74% of whom could sit at home and work, merely 3% of lower-wage earners could enjoy the same luxury. The report emphasizes that those, those on the margins, the poor, racial minorities, and women, are in general more likely to suffer due to the pandemic, and it is imperative that governments across the globe take note of this and devise policies to increase public expenditure. The vitality of public health depends on government expenditure aimed at preserving people's livelihoods. Talking to People's Dispatch, Sucheta Sardar, who teaches economics and is also a consultant with Oxfam India, said that all governments need to take the rising inequality seriously as it can affect the social and economic status of a large number of people. She also highlighted the need to increase public spending on health and education. Responding to the oft-made argument that governments lack resources for such expenditure, she said that, quote, additional money can be generated through the introduction of wealth tax, which is virtually non-existent in countries such as India, to cover extra expenditure bills. The Oxfam report argues that if a temporary tax had been imposed on just 32 of the largest corporations, it would have generated $104 billion dollars in 2020, enough to provide some kind of unemployment benefits and other financial support 
to all in poor and middle-income countries. Warning, however, against adopting such policies in an ad hoc way, Gabriela Butcher, executive director of Oxfam International, argued that, quote, these measures must not be band-aid solutions for desperate times, but a new normal in economies that work for the benefit of all people, not just the privileged few. The policy shift, in other words, must be long-term and involve a change in priorities. The virus has shown us that guaranteed income security is essential and that permanent, a permanent exit from poverty is possible. For this to happen, we need not just living wages, but also far greater job security with labor rights, sick pay, paid parental leave, and unemployment benefits if people lose their jobs. The report notes that the pandemic has exposed our collective frailty and the inability of our deeply unequal societies to work for all, and that is high time that it is high time for course correction. Addressing structural problems such as patriarchy, racism, and neoliberal exploitation would better prepare us to face such emergencies in the future. Next up is a piece published at the Daily Poster. This piece is written by Andrew Perez and Julia Rock. President Joe Biden's new COVID relief plan does not adopt existing Democratic legislation to expand government-sponsored medical coverage, nor does it propose a promised public health insurance option. Instead, it adopts proposals from health insurance lobbying group's recent letter to lawmakers demanding lucrative new subsidies for insurance companies. At a moment when those corporations have recorded record profits as millions lose coverage and many face claims denials. Biden's plan would shovel billions of dollars to private health insurers by providing subsidies for Americans to buy coverage through the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, which are far more expensive than government health care programs and have at times been plagued by high rates of claim denials. The plan would also subsidize COBRA continuation coverage through September, allowing workers to keep their employer health insurance plans when they're laid off. Those initiatives, which could further boost insurers' skyrocketing profits, were recently recommended in a letter to lawmakers from America's Health Insurance Plans, AHIP, and the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, two insurance lobby groups in Washington that have opposed the expansion of government-sponsored health care programs. A few days after the letter was sent, AHIP said that, quote, health insurance providers are eager to assist the Biden health team. Biden's inaugural committee has received donations from at least two major health insurers, Anthem and Centene, which both offer plans on state marketplace exchanges. Centene's CEO bundled donations for Biden's presidential campaign, and Biden's first major campaign fundraiser was headlined by Independence Blue Cross's CEO. During the 2020 primary campaign, Biden repeatedly demonized Medicare for All legislation offered by Representative Pramila Jayapal and Senator Bernie Sanders, questioning how the country would pay for it and proposing a public health insurance option people can buy into instead. 
Democrats previously considered creating a public option during ACA negotiations a decade ago. AHIP secretly bankrolled a successful $100 million advocacy campaign to kill it. While Medicare for All could actually save the country up to $650 billion annually, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, Biden is now proposing some of the most costly and inefficient ways to expand health insurance coverage. The moves could still leave people exposed to substantial out-of-pocket costs from deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance that act as barriers to care. Pushing people onto ACA plans and subsidizing COBRA coverage would be expensive, but not necessarily popular. Healthcare coverage purchased through the ACA marketplace costs 83% more than Medicaid coverage, and ACA plans leave patients with 10 times the amount of out-of-pocket costs, according to a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The researchers concluded that marketplace plans cost so much more than Medicaid because private insurers pay, quote, higher prices for the same services. Hospitals often bill people with employer health insurance plans, which are maintained under COBRA, more than twice as much as those with Medicare or Medicaid. The Biden proposal does include a measure to slightly lower the percentage of Americans' annual incomes that insurers can collect through premiums, from a maximum of 9.86% to 8.5%. Altogether, the Biden transition says its plan, quote, would reduce premiums for more than 10 million people and reduce the ranks of the uninsured by millions more. The ACA marketplace was a centerpiece of Democrats' 2010 health care reform law, but only a small slice of Americans are actually buying insurance plans this way now, often people who are self-employed, independent contractors, or gig workers. The ACA exchanges are only currently, quote, a minuscule part of the health insurance system, the People's Policy Project wrote last month. While the marketplace was billed as allowing people to shop for health insurances, in reality, the state exchanges offer few choices, and most are expensive. The average lowest cost premium for bronze-level plans is $321 this year, though the numbers vary widely by state. The premiums are pricey, but an even bigger issue is the nightmarish deductibles people with the ACA plans are expected to pay before their insurance company actually starts footing their medical bills. The average bronze plan deductible on the individual market was nearly $5,900 in 2019. Deductibles are lower on silver and gold tier plans, but the average lowest cost monthly premiums this year are $436 for silver plans and $482 for gold. Poorer enrollees may qualify for subsidized premiums or cost-sharing reductions, limiting their maximum out-of-pocket expenses. But those reduced out-of-pocket maximums are still substantial. Making matters worse, health insurers deny nearly one in five claims for in-network care by patients with ACA plans, according to data from the Kaiser Family Foundation for 2017. For some insurers, about 40% of claims are rejected. 
Moving the uninsured into these plans would be a massively expensive way to expand coverage. And if insurers are still allowed to impose huge out-of-pocket costs and deny claims with regularity, it may not help people much at all. During the 2020 campaign, a healthcare industry front group called the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, PAHCF, spent $4.5 million on advertisements attacking Medicare for All. The group launched a late wave of ads in South Carolina where Biden's strong performance helped propel him to victories around the country. PAHCF's tax return shows it's steered by executives from AHIP and lobbying groups for pharmaceutical companies and investor-owned hospitals. The industry group raised more than $55 million in 2019, and it had made clear that it would fight against a federal public option plan, just as AHIP did in 2009 and 2010. It also spent millions of dollars in 2020 to block state-level public option in Colorado. Biden consistently campaigned in support of a public health insurance option, and after the primary, a joint task force made up of Biden and Sanders allies negotiated a fairly robust public option plan. Quote, The public option will provide at least one plan choice without deductibles, will be administered by the traditional Medicare program, not private companies, and will cover all primary care without any co-payments and control costs for other treatments by negotiating prices with doctors and hospitals, just like Medicare does on behalf of older people, the task force wrote. The Democratic National Committee's 2020 platform included a similar pledge, quote, Democrats will also make available on the marketplace a public option administered through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which includes a platinum-level choice with low fees and no deductibles. Low-income Americans will be automatically enrolled in the public option at zero cost to them, though they may choose to opt out at any time. Now, Biden is proposing a much more conservative health insurance expansion plan proposed by the health insurance industry. If enacted, the plan could head off any talk in Washington of a public option plan down the road. There are many other options available. Democratic lawmakers could choose to rally around existing legislation to enact an emergency Medicare for All program, or they could press for a public option as the party and its incoming president promised. Biden could use his executive authority to expand Medicare during the pandemic using emergency provisions in the Affordable Care Act. Democrats could also seek to expand Medicaid to cover more people. Instead, Biden is pushing a health insurance expansion that would further enrich insurers and put people on insurance plans that will be too expensive for many of them to use. Democrats should reject this insurance industry cash grab. And this next piece is also from the Daily Poster. This is uh, written by David Sirota, Andrew Perez, and Julia Rock. Read my lips, $2,000 now. And this was written before yesterday. This was written back on January 27th. Um, so it predates all of the current and existing ongoings 
uh, on the budget reconciliation bill in the Senate with that, um, that uh, budget committee now chaired by Bernie Sanders taking advantage of the Senate rules to move forward really important COVID-related spending, part of which includes $1,400 stimulus checks as opposed to the $2,000 checks previously promised. Here's the story. The unfolding story of the $2,000 survival checks may seem like merely a tale of one proposal at one moment in time. But it is a saga that almost perfectly illustrates a key change that explains much of the last 75 years of American politics. For about 50 years in the mid-20th century, the Democratic Party was the labor-anchored vehicle of programmatic universalism and tax fairness. Its most popular social programs, such as Social Security, Medicare, and public education, were eventually structured to offer universal benefits to everyone, regardless of income. And this helped build some modicum of consensus support for the programs, because everyone has skin in the game. Fairness was simultaneously championed with progressive tax policies that promoted higher levies on the rich. But the Democratic Party changed. It became an organization enchanted with best and brightest technocrats and business neoliberals whose obsession with hair-splitting precision and corporate fealty ended up fetishizing ever more complex means testing while largely accepting tax inequity. This new post-New Deal iteration of the party embraced programs that are absurdly complicated Rube Goldberg machines. Contraptions like means-tested tax credits and health insurance subsidies rather than direct aid. Means-tested health insurance subsidies rather than government-guaranteed medical care. Convoluted alphabet soup initiatives like HAMP rather than direct aid to homeowners. And micro-targeted spending programs rather than a broad-based social safety net. Democratic politicians now laud themselves as populists for not locking up white-collar criminals. They infamously refused to do that. Or cracking down on corporate malfeasance. They didn't do that either. But for trying to excise the spawn of billionaires from proposals like free college. In the process, the public has learned to see their agenda as a Byzantine maze of complexity, paperwork, and bureaucracy. A development that has weakened the political consensus behind the party, in part because nobody knows for sure whether they will qualify for its programs. Taken together, Democrats have helped create what journalist David Dayen once called a painful tax on Americans' free time. One requiring us to devote inordinate amounts of our lives trying to access basic necessities, complying with reporting requirements, and proving eligibility for benefits. Meanwhile, fairness ceases to exist as Democrats have increasingly acceded to policies that make the tax system flatter and flatter, to the point where many billionaires pay a lower effective tax rate than their secretaries. Not surprisingly, as the Democratic Party made this conversion from universalism and fairness to means-testing and complexity, America lost faith in government of ever more labyrinthine programs. 
At the same time, Republicans dishonestly portrayed their own seemingly simple tax cuts as the purest and best form of universalism and fairness. The result? Democrats' politically dominant New Deal coalition disintegrated, and the GOP repeatedly shellacked them in the elections. This should have all been a cautionary tale, and yet in 2021, after this multi-generational disaster has laid so much waste to everything, Democrats vaulted back into power by Donald Trump's epic failures somehow still seem intent on repeating the cycle. Even on a $2,000 checks initiative that should have already taught them the opposite lesson. Late last year, at the urging of Bernie Sanders and House progressives, Democrats were forced to break from their proclivity for complexity and issue a simple, read-my-lips-esque promise to deliver $2,000 survival checks. Even though the proposal was itself means-tested, it was still nearly universal and so straightforward that it helped Democrats win two Senate seats in Georgia, a longtime Republican stronghold. And yet, Despite the fact that the $2,000 checks proposal is enormously popular, the party has almost immediately reverted back to form, slowly but surely trying to complicate the idea to the point where it's becoming unrecognizable, complex, and a proof point for those who believe Democrats refuse to just do what they promise. In the weeks since high-profile Democrats from now President Joe Biden to new Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer unequivocally promised that winning the Georgia Senate races and control of the Senate would immediately produce such checks. The party's leaders in its adjacent think tank structure and the elite media they worship have tried to chip away even at this simple, nearly universal idea, despite its overwhelming popularity in opinion polls. First, Biden carefully adjusted his language from saying that $2,000 checks, quote, will go out the door immediately. I have my own little theory about that phrase, which was which is often uh, shared, showing that, that Joe Biden promised to do this. I think maybe when he said these will go out the door immediately, he meant that he would throw the idea away. But I digress. Biden carefully adjusted his language from saying that $2,000 checks will go out the door immediately to declaring now that he will merely, quote, finish the job of getting a total of $2,000 out to people, a shift used to justify proposing new $1,400 checks instead of $2,000 checks. Democratic partisans backed him up, arguing that the promise of $2,000 checks always took into account the $600 checks authorized by Congress in December, even though the party kept pledging $2,000 checks after the $600 checks went out with Trump's name on them. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat West Virginia, barely Democrat, has for weeks been threatening to hold up new survival checks that his constituents could really use, asserting that the relief should be more targeted, an argument injected into the conversation first by discredited austerity economist Larry Summers and then the editorial boards employed by billionaires Michael Bloomberg and Jeff Bezos. Moderate Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, who backed $2,000 checks in December, is now expressing concern that survival checks could go to some people who don't need money, 
just a few years after she cast a key vote in favor of a GOP tax bill designed to benefit the wealthy and slash the corporate tax rate. Amid that drumbeat, Biden has now completed his regression. He has morphed from straight-talking campaigner, promising immediate $2,000 checks, back into his old form as a 40-year Washington dinosaur speaking in incoherent senatees. On Monday, Biden declared that the once simple proposal is now, quote, all a bit of a moving target in terms of the precision with which this goes, adding, there's legitimate reason for people to say, do you have the lines drawn exactly the right way? Should it go to anybody making over X number of dollars or Y? Now comes Bezos's newspaper thundering in to help rationalize the retreat, publishing a story on Tuesday about an economic paper arguing for further means-testing survival checks with a wildly loaded headline, quote, Cutting off stimulus checks to Americans earning over $75,000 could be wise, new data suggests. In past COVID stimulus bills, full rounds of direct payments have gone to individuals earning up to $75,000 and couples earning $150,000. The Post story offered up a new threshold, $50,000 for individuals and $75,000 for couples. Quote, The price tag to send another round of checks to couples earning more than $75,000 and singles earning more than $50,000 would be $200 billion. Yet the researchers estimate this group is only likely to spend $15 billion of that money, about 7%, the paper wrote. The report was quickly touted by the Wall Street-aligned think tank Third Way, the Beltway's most reliable megaphone for let-them-eat-cakeism. The Post story was based on an analysis by economists at Opportunity Insights, which the newspaper described as, quote, a non-profit research organization, rather than a billionaire-funded think tank. Indeed, democracy dies in darkness. Yeah, that's the, the, the Washington Post's um, slogan, but I don't know that it's a slogan. I don't think that they intend it as a warning. I think that is their mantra, that they can kill democracy by promoting the darkness. So, again, I digress. Yes, a billionaire-owned newspaper is using research from billionaire-backed think tank to build the case against sending COVID survival checks to individuals earning between $50,000 and $75,000 on the grounds that they are just too wealthy. This from the same newspaper whose editorial board still defends giving bailouts to Wall Street bankers. Further means testing like this would deny the checks to an additional 27% of American households, transforming a near-universal proposal into one that in total excludes nearly half of all Americans from the benefits, according to census data. Opportunity Insights was launched at Harvard University in 2018 with the backing of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's Family Foundation, which disclosed it would give $15 million to Harvard for the creation of the Opportunity Insights Institute. The organization's website says its partners include the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Its advisory board features former Barack Obama strategist David Plouffe, who advises Zuckerberg's philanthropy, and New York Times columnist David Leonhardt. 
The Opportunity Insights Report analyzed consumer spending data to calculate how much more high-income households, meaning households located in zip codes, where the average annual income is above $78,000 per year, spent on consumer goods after the Treasury began sending out stimulus checks. According to the analysis, high-income households will spend about $45 of the $600 checks passed by Congress in December within the first month of receiving them. The Opportunity Insights analysis concluded, quote, Based on these results, we estimate that households earning more than $78,000 will spend only $105 of the $1,400 stimulus check they receive, implying that the $200 billion of additional government expenditure will lead to only $15 billion of additional spending. One of the report's authors, Brown University economics professor John Friedman, offered the Post the kind of pro-means test refrain that has defined democratic policies for a generation. Quote, Targeting the stimulus payments to lower-income households would both better support the households most in need and provide a large boost to the economy in the short run, he said. It is certainly true that lower-income households need the money more than middle-income households, That data in the report is indisputable. But lots of people are in need right now, and even the Post's attempt to obscure this effectively, inadvertently, admits that. Quote, Data indicates that most people who did not need the money right away are saving the stimulus payments or using them to pay off student loan, credit card, or mortgage debt. The story says in its very last line, as if slightly reducing any of those crushing debt burdens is some sort of luxury expenditure and not a, quote, need. There are other key points that go unaddressed in the report. For example, just because an aid program may have less of a stimulative effect on the macroeconomy, that doesn't mean millions of people don't actually need the money in the face of rising costs for food, shelter, and medical care. And even from that standpoint, it isn't clear that giving people money won't help the economy if they don't spend it immediately. The Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday that saved checks are projected to stimulate the economy when COVID vaccines have been widely distributed and people have more opportunities to spend money. Similarly, if some people can afford to hold on to their survival checks for a minute and save it for the dark days ahead, is that really the worst thing when we are all trying to live through a historic pandemic that is not going away anytime soon? Also, why the fuck are they couching this in what will stimulate the economy? Well, I know why, because they're they're reading from a report, they're they're taking their analysis from a report funded by billionaire philanthropy, which has an agenda that is not a people's agenda. It is not an agenda to say, let's, how, how do we support the people? How do we make life better for people who struggle every fucking day? It's not what they care about. It's not what they're about. They're about the economy. How does, how does this government spending impact the economy? It's bullshit. The only analysis they should they should make is how does this government spending targeted in this way benefit the people? How does it make them feel? How does it make their lives better? The lesson of quote, read my lips. 
Democratic apologists can argue the data all they want. They can trot out the smartest academics to declare that their means-testing ideas would so carefully slice up the aid with such razor-sharp precision that it will liquefy in the pan. They can dishonestly pretend they can't just bring stripped-down $2,000 checks legislation to the House and Senate floors and force votes on it to try to shame the GOP into submission. They can claim the filibuster prevents them from passing it, even though the party has the power to get rid of the filibuster. They can even indignantly insist that Biden pushing $1,400 checks instead of new full $2,000 checks isn't literally a betrayal because, yeah, $600 plus $1,400 does equal $2,000. Great, congratulations on intellectually ethering a desperate population with deadpan Vulcan logic. Please clap. All of these arguments can be backed up with fancy charts, mind-numbing graphs, and impenetrable fact sheets that literally nobody outside of Washington will read. But it all misses the key point. The most exquisitely crafted, well, actually arguments from Washington know-it-alls, academic experts, smug pundits, and emoji-wielding Twitter mobs will not save Democrats from a voter backlash if they fail to deliver on their simple promise just like George Bush's technocratic arguments about budgets and taxes didn't save him from voter backlash after he issued his simple read-my-lips pledge and then violated it. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seemed to be one of the only people in Congress to understand this political axiom when she responded to Biden's post-election proposal by declaring, 2,000 means 2,000. 2,000 does not mean 1,400. The political truism is indisputable. Do everything you can to try to deliver what you promised or expect to pay a political price. That's an especially relevant maxim for someone like Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat of Georgia, who was elected on an explicit $2,000 pledge and will be up for re-election in less than two years. Of course, there is the anti-demagoguery argument insisting that just because a proposal like $2,000 checks is popular in the moment doesn't mean it's worthy of enactment. But that misunderstands longer-term implications for the more-than-justifiable cause of both immediately helping lots of people and rebuilding social cohesion in America. By definition, the more universal a program, the more people have a stake in a policy. This is the principle that has generated transpartisan support for programs like Social Security, Medicare, and public schools. Yes, those programs are available to the top one-tenth of one percent of income earners who don't need them. But that is the small price we pay for the rock-solid political consensus that has protected the programs from politicians and ideologues who want to destroy them. The same principle is at play right now. At a moment when extreme partisan polarization resulted in a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, a little universalism could signal that, yes, government leaders can actually deliver on their promises and make simple, straightforward material benefits available to most people in the country, without burying them in paperwork, hassle, red tape, and confusion. This is a principle Biden, of all people, should understand. While he mostly ran a Seinfeldish campaign about nothing, he does genuinely seem to crave unity 
And the initiatives that tend to be the most unifying are the ones that are, you know, universal. But he's clearly caught between his stated desire to unify the country and to make bold change and his competing obsession with Washington bipartisanship. And sorry, he can't have both. He's going to have to choose. And the wrong choice will be disastrous. Next up, a piece published at nybooks.com. And this is a piece with multiple authors because it is an open letter to President Biden about Guantanamo. It is signed by Mansur Adaifi, Mozambique, Lakhdar Boumadian, Sami Al-Hajj, Ahmed Irachidi, and others. We write you as former prisoners of the United States held without charge or trial at the military detention facility at Guantanamo Bay who have written books about our experiences. First, we welcome your presidential orders to reverse many unjust and problematic decisions made by your predecessor. We appreciate your repeal of the Muslim ban, which will now allow nationals from the Muslim-majority countries previously targeted into the United States therefore bringing relief to families torn apart by this order. Despite some positive developments, including the repeal of the Muslim ban, there is another deeply flawed and unjust process that has continued through five U.S. presidential administrations spanning two decades. Guantanamo Bay Prison Guantanamo Bay has existed for over 19 years and was built to house an exclusively Muslim male population. We understand that your faith is important to you and helps you guide your vision of social justice. During our incarceration, we often reflected on the story of the Prophet Yusuf in the Quran and his years of wrongful imprisonment. It's the same story in the Bible, and one that reminds us that justice is not only divine, but timeless. That is why we are writing to you. Although most of us were released under President Bush, everyone was hopeful that President Obama would follow through with his executive order to close Guantanamo in 2009. While some of us were released under Obama, however, it became clear during his tenure as president that ending imprisonment at Guantanamo was not a promise he could fulfill. Many of us were abducted from our homes in front of our families and sold for bounties to the U.S. by nations that cared little for the rule of law. We were rendered to countries where we were physically and psychologically tortured, in addition to suffering racial and religious discrimination in U.S. custody, even before we arrived at Guantanamo. Some of us had children who were born in our absence and grew up without fathers. Others experienced the pain of learning that our close relatives died back home waiting in vain for news of our return, waiting in vain for justice. Most of the prisoners currently or presently detained at Guantanamo have never been to the United States. This means that our image of your country has been shaped by our experiences at Guantanamo. In other words, we have only been witness to its dark side. Considering the violence that has happened at Guantanamo, 
We are sure that after more than 19 years, you agree that imprisoning people indefinitely without trial while subjecting them to torture, cruelty, and degrading treatment with no meaningful access to families or proper legal systems is the height of injustice. That is why imprisonment at Guantanamo must end. There are only 40 prisoners left in Guantanamo. We are told that the cost of each prisoner is $13 million per annum. That means that the United States spends $520 million a year on imprisoning men who will never be charged or convicted in a U.S. court. Aside from the moral, legal, and public relations disaster that is Guantanamo, some of this money could be easily spent on programs to resettle prisoners and help them to rebuild their lives. President Bush opened it. President Obama promised to close it, but failed to do so. President Trump promised to keep it open. It is now your turn to shape your legacy with regards to Guantanamo. At your inauguration, you told the world, quote, We will be judged, you and I, by how we resolve these cascading crises of our era. We will rise to the occasion. It is therefore our suggestion that the following steps are taken to close Guantanamo. All those cleared for release are immediately repatriated to their home countries as long as they are safe from arbitrary imprisonment and persecution. The office for the special envoy is reopened and suitable countries are sought to restart the resettlement process for those unable to return to their homes. Appropriate measures are taken to ensure that former prisoners are granted the means to start a meaningful life in the new country and are afforded protections from violations of those measures by the receiving state. The concept of forever prisoners is rescinded and those not facing charges under the military commissions are repatriated or resettled as above, following appropriate security arrangements. Repatriation and resettlement should not take place by force, and prisoners are not resettled where they will face arbitrary imprisonment once again. Periodic review board reports should be superseded by the imperative to close Guantanamo and not obstruct the above measures. The military commissions should be scrapped, and those facing charges should have their cases tried in accordance with the law. Where appropriate and practicable, mechanisms are put in place whereby those convicted of crimes can serve their sentences closer to home. Guantanamo causes deep distrust in what America says it stands for. Prisoners from 49 different countries once occupied Guantanamo's cells. Those prisoners look to America as a nation of laws and freedoms and see little of either. For two decades... The world has observed Guantanamo and noted that it is a bipartisan project carried out by both the Republicans and the Democrats. That is what you must contend with and change. Despite the abuses after detention, many of us befriended and welcomed into our homes, former U.S. soldiers who guarded us. We've always believed there was another way. During your tenure as Vice President, America freed senior Taliban leaders from Guantanamo. Today, they had negotiations with top U.S. officials to bring about peace in Afghanistan. During your inauguration speech, you said, quote, 
Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. We agree. In fact, as Obama once said, Guantanamo should never have opened. We believe you can close Guantanamo before its looming 20th anniversary. It is our sincere hope that you do. And finally, here is a piece published at thegrayzone.com. This is written by Max Blumenthal. This was actually published last summer, uh, obviously prior to the election, prior to Joe Biden winning that election and eventually becoming president. Uh, But it has a lot to say about his policies and his, his past and how that drives some of the crises we're facing in the future and the the lack of um, optimism about major changes in the U.S.'s oppressive historic colonization relationship with the countries of Central America in particular and South America as well. While campaigning for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, former Senator and Vice President Joe Biden has touted the crucial role he played in designing U.S. mega-development and drug war campaigns that transformed the socio-political landscape of large swaths of Latin America. Quote, I was one of the architects of Plan Colombia, Biden boasted in a July 5 interview with CNN, referring to the multi-billion dollar U.S. effort to end Colombia's civil war with a massive surge of support for the country's military. According to Biden, the plan was a panacea for Colombia's problems from crooked cops to civil strife. But Biden's plan for Colombia has contributed directly to the country's transformation into a hyper-militarized bastion of right-wing rule, enhancing the power and presence of the notoriously brutal armed forces while failing miserably in its anti-narcotic and reformist objectives. More than 50 human rights defenders were killed in Colombia in the first four months of 2019, while coca production is close to record levels. And as Colombian peace activists lamented in interviews with the Grey Zone, the U.S. is still in complete control of Bogota's failed anti-drug policy, thanks largely to plan Colombia. Biden has also pumped up his role in an initiative called the Alliance for Prosperity, which was applied to the Northern Triangle of Central America. The former vice president was so central to the program's genesis that it was informally known as Plan Biden. Marketed as an answer to the crisis of child migration, Biden's brainchild channeled $750 million through a right-wing government installed by a U.S.-orchestrated military coup to spur mega-development projects and privatize social services. The Gray Zone visited Honduras in July and documented through interviews with human rights defenders, students, indigenous activists, and citizens from all walks of life how the Alliance for Prosperity helped set the stage for a national rebellion. In recent months, teachers, doctors, students, and rural campesinos have been in the streets protesting the privatization plans imposed on their country under the watch of Biden and his successors. The gutting of public health services, teacher layoffs, 
staggering hikes in electricity prices, and environmentally destructive mega-development projects are critical factors in mass migration from Honduras, and indeed they are immediate byproducts of the so-called Biden plan. Quote, Biden is taking credit for doing something constructive to stop the migration crisis and blaming the concentration camps on the U.S.-Mexico border on Trump. But it's Biden's policies that are driving more people out of Central America and making human rights defenders' lives more precarious by defending entities that have no interest in human rights, explained Adrian Pine, a professor of anthropology at American University and leading researcher of the social crisis in Honduras in an interview with The Gray Zone. So $750 million in U.S. taxpayer money that were allocated to supposedly address child migration, are actually making things worse, Pine added. It started with unaccompanied minors, and now you have children in cages, largely thanks to Biden. In an interview with CNN on July 5, Biden was asked if he favored decriminalizing the entry of Latin American migrants to the United States, responding with a definitive no. Joe Biden stated that he would be, quote, surging folks to the border to make those concrete decisions about who receives asylum. Biden argued that he had the best record of addressing the root causes of the migration crisis, recalling how he imposed a solution on Central America's migration crisis. Quote, You do the following things to make your country better so people don't leave, and we'll help you do that, just like we did in Colombia. What did we do in Colombia? We went down and said, okay, and I was one of the architects of Plan Colombia, Biden continued. I said, here's the deal. If you have all these crooked cops, all these federal police, we're sending our FBI down. You let us put them through a lie detector test. Let us tell you who you should fire and tell you the kind of people you should hire. They did and began to change. We can do so much if we're committed. With the arrogance of a pith-helmeted high colonial official meeting out instructions on who to hire and fire to his docile subjects, Biden presided over a plan that failed miserably in its stated goals, while transforming Colombia into a hyper-militarized bastion of U.S. regional influence. Plan Colombia was originally conceived by Colombian President André Pastrana in 1999 as an alternative development and conflict resolution plan for his war-torn country. He considered calling it the plan for Colombia's peace. The proposal was quickly hijacked by the Bill Clinton administration, with Joe Biden lobbying in the Senate for an iron-fisted militarization plan. Th this is not, not a surprise. They saw someone in the region, a leader in the region, taking potential steps to make the region better. But those steps did not, did not necessarily require U.S. input and U.S. ultimately U.S. control. So what do you do? You can't let a small country, if you're the United States and if you're in the imperial mindset, you can't let a small country self-determine its way forward if that way forward does not include your domination. The proposal was quickly hijacked by the Bill Clinton administration with Joe Biden lobbying in the Senate for an iron-fisted 
Militarization Plan. Quote, We have an obligation, in the interests of our children and in the interests of the hemisphere, to keep the oldest democracy in place, to give them a fighting chance to keep from becoming a narco-state, Biden said in a June 2000 floor speech. When Plan Columbia's first formal draft was published, it was done so in English, not Spanish. The original spirit of peace-building was completely sapped from the document by Biden, whose vigorous wheeling and dealing ensured that almost 80% of the $7.5 billion plan went to the Colombian military. 500 U.S. military personnel were promptly dispatched to Bogota to train the country's military. Quote, If you read the original Plan Colombia, not the one that was written in Washington, but the original Plan Colombia, there's no mention of military drives against the FARC rebels. Robert White, the former number two at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, complained in 2000. Quite the contrary. Pastrana says the FARC is part of the history of Colombia and a historical phenomenon, he says. They must be treated as Colombians. White lamented how Washington had abused the trust of the Colombians. They come and ask for bread, and you give them stones. Plan Colombia was largely implemented under the watch of the hardline right-wing president, Alvaro Uribe. In 1991, Uribe was placed on a U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency list of, quote, important Colombian narco-traffickers, in part due to his role in helping drug kingpin Pablo Escobar obtained licenses for landing strips while Uribe was the head of Colombia's Civil Aeronautics Department. Under Uribe's watch, toxic chemicals were sprayed by military forces across the Colombian countryside, poisoning the crops of impoverished farmers and displacing millions. Six years after Bill Clinton initiated Plan Colombia, however, even U.S. drug czar John Walters was forced to quietly admit in a letter to the Senate that the price of cocaine in the U.S. had declined, the flow of the drug into the U.S. had risen, and its purity had increased. Meanwhile, a U.N. Office of Drugs and Crime report found that coca cultivation reached record levels in Colombia in 2018. In other words, billions of dollars have been squandered, and a society already in turmoil has been laid to waste. For the military and right-wing paramilitary forces that have shored up the rule of leaders like Uribe, and the current ultra-conservative Colombian president, Ivan Duque, planned Colombia offered a sense of near-total impunity. The depravity of the country's military was put on bold display when the so-called false positive scandal was exposed in 2008. The incident began when army officers lured 22 rural laborers to a faraway location, massacred them, and then dressed them in uniforms of the leftist FARC guerrillas. It was an overt attempt to raise the FARC body count and justify the counterinsurgency aid flowing from the U.S. under Plan Colombia. The officers who oversaw the slaughter were paid bounties and given promotions. Colombia academics Omar Eduardo Rojas Bolaños and Fabian Leonardo Benavides demonstrated in a meticulous study that, quote, the false positives killings reflected a systematic practice that implicates the commanders of brigades, battalions, and tactical units in the deaths of more than 10,000 civilians. 
Indeed, under Plan Columbia, the incident was far from an isolated atrocity. In an interview in Bogota this May, the Gray Zone's Ben Norton asked Colombian social leader Santiago Salinas if there was any hope for progressive political transformation since the ratification of Plan Colombia. An organizer of the peace group Congreso de los Pueblos, Salinas shrugged and exclaimed, I wish. He lamented that many, Colum- many of Colombia's most pivotal decisions were made in Washington. Salinas pointed to drug policy as an example. It seems like the drug decisions about what to do with the drugs, it has nothing to do with Colombia. There was no sovereign decision on this issue. Colombia does not have a decision, he continued. It was the Washington that wrote the script for Bogota. And the drug trade is in fact a key part of the global financial systems, Salinas pointed out. But Biden was not finished. After 15 years of human misery and billions of wasted dollars in Colombia, he set out on a personal mission to export his pet program to Central America's crime and corruption-ravaged Northern Triangle. In his July sit-down with CNN, Joe Biden trumpeted his plan Colombia as the inspiration for the Alliance for Prosperity he imposed on Central America, channeling the spirit of colonial times once again. He bragged of imposing Washington's politics on the governments of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Quote, We'll make a deal with you, Biden recalled, telling the leaders of these countries. You do the following things to make your country better so people don't leave, and we will help you do that. Biden announced his bold plan on the editorial pages of the New York Times in January 2015. He called it, quote, a joint plan for economic and political reforms, an alliance for prosperity. Sold by the vice president as a panacea to the worsening migration crisis. Damn, if Joe Biden has a panacea for you, run like hell. Uh, the Alliance for Prosperity was a boon for international financial institutions, which promised to deepen the economic grief of the region's poor. The Alliance for Prosperity, quote, treated the Honduran government as if it were a crystal clear, pure vessel into which gold could be poured and prosperity would flow outward, explained Dana Frank, a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of the book, The Long Honduran Night. In reality, the plan would further enrich and strengthen the political power of the very same elites whose green, deliberate subversion of the rule of law and destruction of natural resources and of indigenous and campesino land rights were responsible for the dire conditions the proposal ostensibly addressed, Frank added. In Honduras, the government had no capacity or will to resist Biden's plan. That is because the country's elected president, Juan Manuel Zelaya, had been removed in 2009 in a coup orchestrated by the United States. Thanks, Obama. As Elijah told the Greystones' Anna Premapil, the Obama administration was infuriated by his participation in ALBA, a regional economic development program put forward by Venezuela's then-president Hugo Chavez that provided an alternative to neoliberal formulas like the so-called Biden plan. Following the military coup, a corporate-friendly administration was installed to advance the interests of international financial institutions, and U.S. trainers arrived in town to hone the new regime's mechanisms 
of repression. Under the auspices of the Central American Regional Security Initiative, the FBI was dispatched to oversee the training of Fusina, the main operational arm of the Honduran Army, and the base of the Military Police for Public Order, PMOP, that patrols cities like an occupation force. In an October 14 cable, the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa acknowledged that PMOP was riven with corruption and prone to abuse and attempted to distance itself from the outfit, even though it operated under the umbrella of Fusina. This June, the PMOP invaded the Autonomous University of Honduras, attacking students, protesting the privatization of their school, and wounding six. The creation by the U.S. Embassy in Honduras of a special forces unit known as the Tigres has added an additional layer of repressive muscle. Besides arresting activists, the Tigres reportedly helped a drug kingpin escape after he was detained during a U.S. investigation. While violent crime surged across Honduras, unemployment more than doubled, extreme poverty surged, and so did the government's security spending. To beef up his military, President Juan Orlando Hernandez dipped into the social security programs that kept a mostly poor population from tumbling into destitution. As Alex Rubenstein reported for the Gray Zone, the instability of post-coup Honduras has been particularly harsh on the LGTTBI, lesbian, gay, trans, travesti, bisexual, and intersex Hondurans. More than 300 of them have been killed since 2009, a dramatic spike in hate crimes, reinforced by the homophobic rhetoric of the right-wing evangelical confraternity that represents the civil society wing of the ultra-conservative Hernandez government. As the social chaos enveloped Honduran society, migration to the U.S.-Mexican border began to surge to catastrophic levels. Unable to make ends meet, some Hondurans sent their children alone to the border, hoping that they would be granted temporary protective or refugee status. By 2014, the blowback of the Obama administration's coup had caused a national emergency. Thousands of Hondurans were winding up in cages in detention camps run by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and many of them were not even 16 years old. That summer, Obama went to Congress for $3.7 billion in emergency funds to ramp up border militarization and deport as many unaccompanied Central American minors as possible. Biden used the opportunity to rustle up an additional billion dollars, exploiting the crisis to fund a massive neoliberal project that saw Honduras as a base for international financial opportunity. His plan was quickly ratified, and the first phase of the Alliance for Prosperity began. The implementation of the Alliance for Prosperity was overseen by the Inter-American Development Bank, IADB, a U.S.-dominated international financial institution based in Washington, D.C., that supports corporate investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. A graphic on the IADB's website outlined the plan's objectives in an anodyne language that concealed its aggressively neoliberal agenda. For instance, the IADB promised the, quote, fostering of regional energy integration, 
This was a clear reference to Plan Pueblo Panama, a regional-wide neoliberal development blueprint that was conceived as a boon to the energy industry. Under the plan, the IADB would raise money from Latin American taxpayers to pay for the expansion of power lines that would carry electricity from Mexico all the way to Panama. Honduras, with its rivers and natural resources, provided the project with a major hub of energy production. In order for the country's energy to be traded and transmitted to other countries, however, the International Monetary Fund mandated that its national electricity company be privatized. Since the implementation of that component of Plan Biden, energy costs have begun to surge for residential Honduran consumers. In a country with a 66% poverty rate, electricity privatization has turned life from precarious to practically impossible. Rather than languish in darkness for long hours with unpaid bills piling up, many desperate citizens have journeyed north towards the U.S. border. As intended, the Alliance for Prosperity's Regional Energy Integration Plan has spurred an influx of multinational energy companies to Honduras. Hydroelectric dams and power plants began rising up in the midst of the lush pine forests and winding rivers that define the Honduran biosphere pushing many rural indigenous communities into a life-and-death struggle. This July, the Grey Zone traveled to Rayatoka, a remote farming community located in the heart of the Honduran dry sector. The indigenous Lenka residents of this town depend on their local river for fish, recreation, and most importantly, water to irrigate the crops that provide them with a livelihood. But the rush on energy investment brought an Italian-Chilean firm called Progelsa, to the area to build a massive hydroelectric dam just upstream. Wilmer Alonso, a member of the Lenga Indigenous Council of Rayatoka, spoke with the Grey Zone, shaking with emotion as he described the consequences of the dam for his community. The entire village is involved in this struggle, Alonso said. Everyone knows the catastrophe that the construction of this hydroelectric plant would create. He explained that like so many foreign multinationals in Honduras, Progelsa employs an army of private thugs to intimidate protesters. Quote, the private company uses the army and the police to repress us. They accuse us of being trespassers, but they are the ones trespassing on our land. The Alliance for Progress also provided the backdrop for the assassination of the renowned Honduran environmentalist and feminist organizer, Berta Caceres. On March 3, 2016, Caceres was gunned down in her home in rural Honduras. A towering figure in her community with a presence on the international stage, Caceres has been leading the fight against a local dam project overseen by DESA, a powerful Honduran energy company backed by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID and run by powerful former military officers. The representatives that DESA sent to sign its deal with USAID, Sergio Rodriguez, was later accused of masterminding Caceres' murder alongside military officials and former company employees. In March 2018, the Honduran police arrested DESA's executive president, Roberto David Castillo Mejia, accusing him of, quote, providing logistics and other resources to one of the material authors of the assassination. Castillo was a West Point graduate 
who worked in the energy industry while serving as a Honduran intelligence officer. This July, the Grey Zone visited the family of Berta Caceres and La Esperanza, a town nestled in the verdant mountains of Intibuca. Caceres's mother, Doña Berta, lives there under 24-hour police guard, paid for by human rights groups. The Caceres household is bristling with security cameras and family members get around in armored cars. In her living room, we met Laura Zuniga Caceres of the Civil Council of Indigenous and Popular Organizations of Honduras, COPIN, the human rights group that her mother Berta founded. Quote, the violence in Honduras generates migrant caravans which tears apart society. And it all has to do with all of this extractism, this violence, Zuniga Caceres told the Grey Zone. And the response from the U.S. government is to send more soldiers to our land. It is to reinforce one of the factors that generates violence the most in our society. We are receiving reports from our comrades that there is a U.S. military presence in indigenous Lanka territory, she added. For what? Humanitarian aid? With weapons? It's violence. It's persecution. The Alliance for Prosperity also commissioned the privatization of health services through a deceptively named program called the Social Protection Framework Law, or La Ley Marco de Protección Social. Promoted by Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez as a needed reform, the scheme was advanced through a classic shock doctrine-style episode. In 2015, close associates of Hernandez siphoned some $300 million from the Honduran Institute for Social Services, IHSS, into private businesses, starving hospitals of supplies, and causing several thousand excess deaths, mostly among the poor. With the medical sector in shambles, Hondurans were then forced to seek health care from the private companies that were to provide services under Hernandez's social protection plan. Quote, the money that was robbed in the IHSS scandal was used to justify the Le Marco Protection Social, Karen Spring, a researcher and coordinator for the Honduras Solidarity Network, told Grayzone. The hospitals were left in horrible conditions with no human capital, and they were left to farm out to private hospitals. When Hondurans go to hospitals, they will be told they need to go to a private company, and through the deductions in their jobs, they will have to pay a lot out of pocket, Spring said. Through the old universal system, you would be covered no matter what you had, from a broken arm to cancer. No more. In response, Hondurans poured out into the streets, launching the March of Torches, the first major wave of continuous protests against Hernandez and his corrupt administration. In March 2015, in the middle of the crisis, Joe Biden rushed down to Guatemala City to embrace Hernandez and restore confidence in the Alliance for Prosperity. I come from a state that, in fact, is the corporate capital of America. More corporations are headquartered there than any place else, Biden boasted with Hernandez and the presidents of Guatemala and El Salvador standing by his side. They want to come here. Corporate America wants to come. Does it ever? Emphasizing the need for more anti-corruption and security measures to attract international financial investment, Biden pointed to plan Colombia as a shining model 
and to himself as its architect. Today, Colombia is a nation transformed, just as you hope to be 10 to 15 years from now, the vice president proclaimed. Following Biden's visit, the privatization of Honduran economy continued apace, and so did the corruption, the repression, and the unflinching support from Washington. By 2017, the movement in Honduras that had galvanized against the U.S.-orchestrated 2009 coup saw its most immediate opportunity for political transformation at the ballot box. President Hernandez was running for re-election, violating a constitutional provision on term limits. His opponent, Salvador Nasralla, was a popular broadcast personality who provided a centrist consensus choice for the varied elements that opposed the country's coup regime. When voting ended on November 26, Nasralla's victory appeared certain, with exit polls showing him comfortably ahead by several points. But suddenly the government announced that a power outage required the suspension of vote counting. Days later, Hernandez was declared the victor by about 1%. The fraud was so transparent that the Organization of American States, normally an arm of U.S. interests in Latin America, declared in a preliminary report that, quote, errors, irregularities, and systemic problems, as well as extreme statistical improbability, rendered the election invalid. But the United States recognized the results anyway, leaving disenfranchised Hondurans with protest as their only recourse. Quote, Hondurans tried to change what happened in their country through the 2017 elections, not just Hernandez, but all the implementation of all these policies that the Biden plan had funded and implemented all these years since the coup, explained Karen Spring of the Honduras Solidarity Network. They tried to change that reality through votes, and when the elections turned out to be fraud, tons of people had no choice but to take to the streets. At the front lines of the protest in 2017 was Spring's longtime partner, the Honduran activist Edwin Espinal. Following a protest in November of that year where property damage took place, Espinal was arrested at gunpoint at his home and accused of setting fire to the front door of a hotel. He fervently denied all charges, accusing the government of persecuting him for his political activism. In fact, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights had placed a protective measure on Espinal in 2010 in response to previous attempts to legally railroad him. The government placed Espinal in pretrial detention in La Tolva, a U.S.-style maximum security prison normally reserved for violent criminals and narco-traffickers. Last October, Espinal and Spring were married in the jail while surrounded by masked guards. Quote, since the Biden plan, contractors have been coming down to build these U.S.-style maximum security prisons, Springs said. That's where my husband, Edwin Espinal, is being held. They say the company is Honduran, but there's no way Hondurans could have built that without U.S. architects or U.S. construction firms giving them the plans, she added. I've been in the prison, and it's like they dumped a U.S. prison in the middle of Honduras. Reflecting on her husband's persecution, Spring explained, quote, Edwin wanted to stay in his country to change the reality that caused mass migration. He's one of the people who's faced consequences because he went to the streets. And he's faced persecution for years because he's one of the Hondurans who wanted to change the country by staying and fighting. 
Berta Caceres was another. Hondurans wanted to use their voices to change the country, and now they're voting with their feet, she continued. So if Biden's plan really addressed the root causes of the migrant crisis, why aren't people asking why migration is getting worse? Hondurans are voting on the Biden plan by fleeing and saying your plan didn't work and it made our situation worse by fleeing to the border. And thus you reap what you sow. Chalmers Johnson called it blowback. It is the inevitable consequences. I, I, I want to say unintended. It's certainly not the stated goals. So in that sense, it's unintended consequences. But it's inevitable and it's known and it's been proven in history that these kinds of imperialist and colonizing actions of, of giving societies over, opening countries up to quote-unquote investment uh, by by corporations, which is just extractive. Companies are in the business of making money. And they want to do so in a way that perpetuates making more money in the future. But aside from that, they too often don't give a shit about what the consequences are. And thus, you reap what you sow as immigrants continue to travel from countries in Central America up to our southern border. And we continue to treat them as if they're not human beings. We're perpetuating our national history of colonization and imperialism from Europe into this new land in which we committed the most atrocious global genocide perhaps ever against the Native Americans, upon which we stacked one of the most atrocious genocides perhaps ever against Africans being forcibly transported to the U.S. as slaves or enslaved to work and profit these plantations and corporations and individuals, it's a perpetuation of the same system. We think it's gone. We think it's history. The problem is we don't learn the history. We don't learn and embrace, and I don't mean embrace as support, but internalize and understand we are not what we pretend to be as a nation. We are not what those sanitized and dumbed-down history books in our schools present. That is not what built our country. Until we can understand that, until we can understand the real truth and come to terms with it and deal with it and atone for it and provide reparations for it and make those people who are living with the ongoing impacts of that, not just what was done 200 and 300 
and 400 years ago in this country. But what was done five and 10 and 20 and 50 years ago and what is being done today within this country and how we project our imperialism around the world until we learn those lessons. It's going to be a hell of a hard time to try to stop it. But there's a lot of people out there that have enough of an understanding here and around the world that are fighting, are fighting to make it better, are fighting to inform others about this reality. But it's a long, hard struggle. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. Check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. I say this because there's this huge emphasis, and you know how much discussion there is now about history and arguments about history, arguments about history standards, national standards for history. That whole debate has gone on about the the standards drawn up in California, uh, which led to a Senate resolution. You know, the Senate is, is... very interested in history and culture and art and things like that. Uh, and so the Senate passed a, re- a resolution overwhelmingly, you know, uh, denouncing these history standards and calling for a history in which the United States would not be denigrated and so on. Um, so there's all this controversy about history. And much of, the co- much of the controversy sort of ends up with talking about how it is important to know facts. And, well, that's what tests are based on. Uh, standardized tests are based on facts. I remember a few years ago, the New York Times did a survey of high school students to see how much history they knew. And uh, they do this, you know, every few years. They, they do a survey of young people to, s- to prove how dumb they are <laughs> and to prove how smart are the givers of the tests. And so they gave this uh, test to high school seniors and corroborated what they thought, that young people don't know anything about history. They asked questions like, who was the president during the War of 1812? Uh, who was the president during the, during the Mexican War? Please, I can see you thinking already. <laughs> We're in a great quiz, quiz culture, and all you have to do is drop something. I, that, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. But a question like, what came first, the Homestead Act or the Civil Service Act? Well, you recognize questions like that because they're the questions that appear on tests which enable you to get into graduate school. Or 
you can go very far if you know enough of those answers. You will be Phi Beta Kappa. You will become an advisor to the President of the United States. Do you remember the, the book, The Best and the Brightest, which was precisely about that point, that the people surrounding the presidents who made the war in Vietnam were the, were the brightest people. They were the people who got the highest scores. They were Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, and they were the architects of the war in Vietnam.